morning's scripture reading is out of Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. It says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? This is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You want to be seated? Well, good morning, church. Good morning, church. There we go. There we go. We're awake. If you have a copy of scripture, please go to Acts chapter four. We will get there Eventually. <laughs> this morning I'm, I am very excited um, to be sharing with you not just a message that God gave me this past few weeks as I prep for this, but a message that God has walked me through, has taken me through, uh, that I might somewhere still be in the middle of. <laughs> How many of you know life is a process? We never arrive. We're always in process. And so we're going to be okay with that process today. Show of hands, how many of y'all love superheroes? Okay, four of y'all? That's incredible. That, that's incredible. I want you to turn to your neighbor. This is the moment we're going to, you're going to speak to your neighbor for a second. Tell your neighbor your favorite superhero. I don't care if your neighbor's 80 or if they're eight. Tell them your favorite superhero. Go. Okay, okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, where are my Batman fans? Batman fans? Okay, do we have any Superman fans? Okay, any, any Spider-Man fans? Now we're talking, now we're talking, yes, yes. All right, Captain America, Iron Man. How many of y'all didn't have an answer? Okay, see, I knew y'all were superhero fans. Now, why do I bring up superheroes? Did you guys know that for years when superheroes were created, one of the, the biggest things that they had to do or requirements was relatability? That you, people had to relate to a superhero. That's why uh, Clark Kent, Superman, was raised in a farm in Kansas. Because what's more American than farms in Kansas? And, and that's why you see people like Batman have no special ability other than being incredibly rich. <laughs> but they're relatable people. And the question that I want to pose to you is, why do we have to relate to superheroes? I love superheroes. I'm a big comic book nerd. That's part of me. If you hung out with me long enough, you will learn that. But why do we have to relate to superheroes? You see, I believe that they show us what our life could be in our imagination. Our life could be great. We could be the superhero. We could be the one. It allows us to dream of what our life could look like, what a hero version of ourselves could look like. I want you to imagine, what if Clark Kent wasn't from a farm in Kansas but was from a farm in Nacogdoches? Yeah, now that's a good comic book. 
But how much more relatable is he now to your life? What if he grew up here in Neck? See, guys, I believe we love heroes. I think we look for heroes in the world among us. Just like we love superheroes, we also love the idea of someone being a hero among society. And just like the Israelites, when they chose their first king, and their eyes all turned to Saul, because he was taller, he looked the part, he looked like he was a hero. Our eyes search people and say, who's a hero? Who's destined to be great? And I think that's the question. All of us have a criteria. The Israelites had a criteria. He naturally looked the part. He said he was, a, he was a whole head taller than everyone else. He was a handsome man, a man that if you just looked at him, he said, that's a leader. That person is going to be great. He looks like he deserves to be great. And today we're going to talk a little bit about how we've trained our minds to look for heroes in the world but we've trained our minds to view ourselves as the hero that the world needs. And that if people would just do things the way that I would do them, the problems in this world wouldn't exist. If people would just think the way I think about anything, you could insert a hot button topic or you could insert the way people should uh, drive their little buggy in the, shopping, in, the, in the shopping area at Walmart. If y'all would just do it like I do it, it'd be fine. That's what we think. Because I think that I am the one destined for greatness and if the world could just do what I do, we'd be okay. In the story of scripture, goes completely against that. If people could just do what I do, we'd be all right because I'm the hero the world needs. Today, we're gonna talk about the problem of pride. I believe pride in our life leads us to desire three things. If you have notes, you can write these down. Uh, the pride in our life desire, leads us to desire three things. The first thing is that it leads us to want to be acknowledged. The second is that the pride in our life not only leads us to a place where we want to be acknowledged, but it leads us to a place where we want to be recognized. There's a difference there. Acknowledge is that, oh, John did it. Recognize, and he did such a great job. We want to be recognized and acknowledged, and the last thing is that we want to be celebrated. I believe pride is a problem in our lives. A problem that if we leave unchecked, will pop up in our life. Those little things inside of us that we know to be prideful, that we just dismiss, if we do not go to the cross and deal with them, they pop up in our lives and we go, where did that come from? It came from the pride that we were brewing inside of our heart. Kerry Newhoff, he wrote a leadership book and he said this about pride. He says, pride will snuff out your empathy. It will stifle your compassion, create division, suffocate love, foster jealousy, and deaden your soul. Pride 
is a problem. I started thinking about the story of Scripture. I often find myself thinking about just the narrative of of the Bible. Big picture, zoom out, think about it. If you look at the narrative of Scripture, I go, okay, where are the heroes? Where are the heroes in Scripture? Where are those who've got it all together, the person that we can follow? Where are the heroes? Because if the Bible is real, and the stories in the Bible are not just stories that we read and are fairy tales in our head, but if they are real, then the Bible actually shows us a perfect case study for understanding the world that we live in. It, it shows us what perspective of ourself and what perspective of others we should carry. It shows us how we should react to the people that we have interactions with. It shows us how we should respond to God. If the Bible isn't just stories, but it's a case study, and if we're looking at the issue of pride and who is great, then let's look at the Bible. Because the Bible is going to paint a very, very clear picture of who is great. Who is the hero of the Bible? Who's the greatest in the Bible? It's an interesting conversation. Let's do a quick run through and see if any of these guys would classify as heroes in your mind. We'll start at the beginning. Adam, a passive husband who blames his wife for sin entering the world. I would not classify that as a hero. Abraham lets his wife live in a scandalous relationship with the Egyptians because of his selfish fear. About Moses, kills an Egyptian. He's too afraid to obey God at the burning bush. Constantly came up with an excuse. And he even gets left out of the promised land by making a spectacle of himself when he struck the rock. Okay, well, let's fast forward a little bit. How about Samuel? Okay, the apathetic father who didn't do anything about his sons when his sons were taking advantage of the women in the community, even though his sons were priests. Okay, how about Saul, the King Saul? Well, numerous murder attempts. King Saul ends up worshiping false idols. Okay, well, not Saul, but the chosen one, David. Okay, well, and David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. And more than that, uh, Bathsheba's husband was actually his close friend. And so he's a, he's a backstabbed his friend. Okay, what about Solomon? Solomon had an incredible issue with the women in his life. How about Jonah, a prophet, one of the prophets, Jonah? Jonah said, I'd rather die than see my enemy come to know the Lord. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Okay, New Testament, New Testament. How about Paul? Well, Paul's a murderer, and he also had resentment in his heart towards John Mark. What about Peter? Literally denies ever knowing Jesus. Peter acts as a hypocrite when the Jews and the Gentiles come around. Where are the heroes? Where's the hero? Where is the, the human character? Who's the hero? Where is it? If you, if you search scripture, you don't find that character. 
And guys, we've been around church long enough. We all know the answer is that Jesus is the hero of Scripture, right? We understand that principle, that Jesus was perfect. Jesus was loving. Jesus embodied compassion. Jesus saved the oppressed. Jesus offered forgiveness for the world. Jesus is the hero. See, the Bible doesn't point to the greatness of humanity. The Bible points to the greatness of Jesus, And what our pride does, our pride shows up and said, why don't we actually talk a little bit about how great we are? And the Bible goes completely against that and says that Jesus is the one that's great. Jesus is the one that's great, not humanity. The Bible points to the the brokenness, actually, of humanity. The need for Jesus Humanity is flawed and broken. For a while, I had a hard time using the word broken because something couldn't be broken. Things need to be right. Things need to be put together. Things need to go where they belong and need to be put back in a certain way. And, And the dishes can't be dirty. The house has to be clean. Things cannot be chaotic. It needs to be perfect. I'm sure that's no one else in this room that ever deals with that. But the story of the Bible is that humanity is flawed and broken and is imperfect. And if we try to live in a world where we try, continue to try and create a pseudo type of perfection, we're living in a world that the Bible does not teach us about. We're living in a world that we try to create. If we can try and create perfection, it's not actually perfect. We're using a false sense of perfection, a false sense of greatness. Because we need things to look and feel right so that we can look and feel right. Because the Bible says that people are, and then we go against it, people are not perfect. That humanity is flawed and broken. What do we do with this? What do we do with this idea? That humanity is not the hero of the story. You know, all around us people say that humanity is not flawed, but humanity is beautiful. Um, People will say things that we need to find faith in humanity. And that humanity has the answers to the problems that we face. We've heard these principles And we understand what they're trying to say. And even on a global scale, and if I would say, hey, have faith in humanity. Um, Humanity can do this. Don't worry about God, just humanity. All of us in this room would say, that's a terrible idea. That God is the one that's great. and, And up to ourselves, we cannot do it. The problem is when we turn the mirror on ourselves and we say, Well, think about humanity being great on the individual level. Think about your thought life. Think about our individual thought lives. The way that we perceive ourselves. The way that we think and feel about who we are and what we're destined to become. The way that we think and feel about the person next to us in regards to who we are. I believe that all of us understand that humanity needs a savior. 
I think all of us also struggle with thinking that individually we are much better than we think we are. And that we spend so much of our life convincing ourselves of our own greatness. And we have things built into our culture to convince us of how great we individually are. I remember being 19. I worked at a bookstore. And I had some people in my life who had let me down. And everywhere I looked, it seemed like humanity was broken. And I remember saying, where are the perfect people? As naive as I was, I was looking for someone to be perfect. And I would go through a list and say, well, surely this person. And then they would do something weird. And then, well, surely this person. Then they would let me down. Or, or surely this person. Then they would act rebellious to the Lord. Or surely this person. And I remember I had one man standing. <laughs> it was a man named Jason who works with me. And I said, it's this one. People. And then I remember the day that Jason lost his temper, temper at work. <laughs> no fault to Jason. We all have moments where we do that. And I remember being hit with the reality that people aren't perfect in that we're not perfect, I'm not perfect, I can't live to be perfect, but rather I need to embrace my brokenness. My world was altered. But think about this, we all know it. Are the people that you know perfect? I want you to think about your coworkers. Are they perfect? Your roommates, your family members, are they perfect? All of us would say, well, clearly no. And I can tell you how. We are aware of their imperfections. Why? Because over time, we've analyzed and built opinions based upon their imperfections. But then we think about how do we want people to view, our, view us? We're aware of the people's imperfections around us, but when we think about their opinion toward us, what do we want? Well, we want them to view us as loving, as joyful, as peace, peace people, as people of peace, as people that are giving. In other words, we want them to view us as, a, as all of the fruit of the Spirit. We want them to think about ourselves individually. I'll use myself as an example. Think about John. John is loving. John is peaceful. John is joyful. And we want that to just be the perception. And what we end up doing is we end up taking credit for those things in our life. That's the fruit of the Spirit Pouring out. Anytime that I act in a loving, joyful, peace-giving way, that's because the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, is living inside of me and is creating this in the outward reality. But pride comes and says, I want credit for that. That was me. That was not the Lord sanctifying and working in me. I want that. And furthermore, I want you all to think that about me. Because if we go back to it, we're aware of the imperfections in others, Right? All of us are aware of the imperfections in others. But when we flip the mirror,
we realize that we're a lot more comfortable talking about other people's imperfections than we are talking about the imperfections within our own soul. We become more comfortable talking about the brokenness in the world around us than we are discussing the brokenness within our own soul. And that's pride. Pride acknowledges the brokenness in the world around us, but it hardens its heart to the brokenness and the imperfections that are within. And we're going to read a couple stories of the disciples and Ananias and Sapphira, and they're going to show us that this same principle of pride, of wanting to be great, wanting to be something special. I believe too many of us want to be great. We want to be the hero. We'll say things like this, the glory is the Lord's, but then we live our life in a way that's focused on getting people to think more about our, us than about the Lord. And in other words, We'll say this, uh, rather than being an image bearer of the Lord, we become image makers of ourselves. And so we spend all of our time perfecting the image that someone else has about us rather than being an image bearer of God. We spend our time being an image maker rather than an image bearer, crafting what our image looks like in the mind of the people around us. But this goes against the entire narrative of Scripture Who is great in Scripture? Is it not the Lord? Yet we believe that we are destined to be the great one. Why is it that we secretly want to be great? Go to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. Before I read this passage, I want to talk to you a little bit about Acts 4. Acts 4 is the beginning of the early church. We love the early church. We read Acts chapter two and we talk about how they had all these devotions and everyone had everything in common and a mighty movement of God was happening. And we say, I wanna be a part of the early church. There was no drama. There was no problems. The early church was where it's at. And then Acts talks about this story at the end of four and beginning of five that kind of shows that the early church wasn't as perfect as we thought it was. Look at verse 32 in chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, we're more familiar with the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Things are going great. It says that 
in the early church, there's not a needy person among them. Why? It says that members in the congregation were selling land. They were selling property. And they were bringing to the apostles the money they had received. Because they wanted to help the church. They wanted to be about the church. Because their focus was not based in pride, but was, was based in caring for others. That's what happens. And, and what do we see? That Barnabas joins in on it. Other people join in on it. But hiding behind the curtain are two people, Ananias and Sapphira. And see, in Ananias and Sapphira, they see what's happening. They notice that when, when Barnabas brought money to the apostles, the story doesn't say this verbatim, but we, we can imagine that people were grateful to Barnabas. That people gave Barnabas some sort of appreciation, some sort of recognition. And Ananias and Sapphira, with stars in their eyes, develop a plan of how they can receive recognition and praise and acknowledgement from the local church and keep some money for themselves. Let's read verses one through six of chapter five. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remains unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. In great fear coming upon all who heard it, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him and buried him. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their land. They come in to the apostles, ready to receive the recognition, ready to hear the well done, ready to get the credit, ready for the people's perception of them to change in the community. And Peter, with a discerning heart, understands that what they're doing is they're putting on a front, saying that this was all the money. Yeah, we gave all the money, all the money. We just want to help the people, all the money. And then in their heart, lying. And Peter calls out that. He's essentially telling Ananias that you are giving off the perception of spiritual maturity without the reality of spiritual maturity. You're giving off the perception of this great thing. Everyone view me as great. But we know that your pride and your ego has actually been the thing that has motivated you. And he says, so why have you lied to the Lord? Why have you acted one way for everyone to see? But we know the inward reality of your heart was far from God. It was the inward reality of your heart was about you receiving credit and glory and honor and fame and recognition. Why have you done this? And that's the question that points to me today. The perception of spiritual maturity without the reality of spiritual maturity. The church, the early church was going great. 
The early church was going great. And what happened? Pride. Pride happened. I believe pride corrupts the church more quickly than anything else. Pride will corrupt a church. And in this case, Ananias and Sapphira had to suffer the consequences of their pride. When we do something outwardly that has the appearance of doing something for the Lord, but inwardly we know that we're doing it just for our own credit and recognition. I believe that we get caught up in chasing the Lord's glory, chasing not the Lord's glory. We begin to chase our own glory by doing the Lord's work. We chase our own glory while doing the Lord's work. And our, our, the inside of us says, no, we want to be great. We want to be great. And that pride creeps into our life. I want to talk to you about two different ways that pride can come into your life based upon who God has made you. There's two different ways that pride may come up in your life. Uh, the first way is that it's, it's, it's a confident pride. These are the people that truly believe they're great. That, you know, they would never come out and say it. But they believe they're destined for greatness. If, if only one person can do the job, it's going to be me. Because I believe I'm destined for greatness. They believe they've been the chosen one. But they believe that they have the best solutions for the problems. And that the worst thing that someone could ever tell to them is that, hey, you ought to actually go home and not be great, but just be average. And that person's soul dies when they hear that. They struggle with this idea that greatness isn't for them, but greatness is for the Lord. And to them, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'd like to read it to you. He says in chapter 4 verse 11, uh, a, a really peculiar text of how we ought to think of ourselves um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He actually says, and aspire to live quietly. And to mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. He says to the person that feels like they're destined for greatness. Aspire to live quietly. Aspire to not make your name be the name that's in lights. But to live a normal average life where you love the people around you. You mind your own affairs. You care for your community. You love your family. The person that struggles with the idea of confident pride, that believes they have the best solutions for the problems, that feels the need to insert their opinions, he says, live a normal life, not desiring to be great. The other way that pride can creep into our life is in, through insecurities. The insecure pride. You know, this person is aware of their shortcomings, but is aware of it in a way that's debilitating. Uh, because of the insecurity in their heart, they feel the need to make themselves feel secure. And how do they do that? Well, they do that by creating this false sense of security that's based upon accomplishments, achievements, and recognitions. 
And so they will think about people in their life or think about things they've done and they'll think, okay, at least I'm better than this person. And because I'm better than this person, I now can feel secure, can feel confident. And I like to say that that also is a form of pride. As we get to in a second with the story of the disciples, the passage that Jeremy read, the disciples were comparing, well, I'm better than Andrew, but Matthew might be a little better than me. Okay, so how do I become better than Matthew? And this becomes the way they perceive the world. And for the people that struggle with pride in this way, the second Corinthians chapter three, uh, verses four and five, talks to us about this. And it says that such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But what? Our sufficiency is from God. The person who struggles with insecurity and and thus in the insecurity creates pride is the person that says, okay, I'm going to be sufficient because I can compare, feel better about myself, and now... Now, I'm good. My insecurities are gone. And 2 Corinthians says that your sufficiency is from God, not from the things you've done. And our brains have to be rewired to think that way. That you are enough because God says that you are sufficient. You are enough because God's brought you into his family. God's put his spirit within you. You know, because Christ has made us sufficient, we don't have to spend time hiding our weaknesses from other people so they could never find out our real brokenness. But rather, we're all broken. We're all broken and in need of a hero. I'd like to go to Luke chapter 2 and look at this story very quickly. In Luke chapter 2, this is one of the strangest stories in all of Scripture as I read it. Because we understand the disciples could have argued with each other. We can imagine that. But do you know when this story takes place? It takes place right after the Last Supper, when Jesus did his final communion with his brothers. When, When Jesus washed their feet. Right after that, they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. That, that high priestly prayer in John 17 that we're familiar with happened in Gethsemane. So in between the Last Supper and the prayer meeting in Gethsemane, the disciples get in an argument along the way. And if that isn't the most human thing ever, I don't know what is. In between these two incredible things that God is doing in your life, do you ever get in an argument with the person closest to you? I know for me that happens. But look at, look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. And those in authority over them were called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I among you as the one who serves? The Passover literally just happens, and he's talking about them 
reclining at table. He talks about them, him being the one that serves. The, the image that he's going back to in their mind is that he just served them by washing their feet. He says that the, the person who's great is the one who serves, who, the person who's great is the one who washes the feet. And he uses this word, benefactor. And at the end of verse 25, he says, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. The idea of being a benefactor is, the, is getting credit for something. That I will serve if I get credit for serving. I will do what I'm supposed to do if there's some sort of credit at the end that I can receive, some benefit that I can get, a proper recognition. And Jesus shows up and he, th- and he throws this idea in the face and he says, no, 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 no. Humanity serves because Christ serves. Humanity models the greatness of God by serving because humanity is image bearers. I'd like to talk about that concept very quickly. In Genesis, God creates man and woman in the image of God, in the image of himself. And the concept that man and woman were made as image bearers of God to the world was born. God does not allow anything else in all of creation to become an image bearer. No animals, nothing in nature, but he gives it to humans. And so the very first thing that we see about being an image bearer is that it was something that was given to humanity. And this was a valuable thing. Nothing else had this opportunity. Nothing else had this recognition. What does that show us? It shows us that value and worth is always given to us by God, not earned by our behavior. Because what had humanity done at that point? Nothing. They, had, they were just created. And so value and worth is given to us completely unattached to the things we've done. We have value, we have worth because of what God has done for us in making us in the image of his son. But that goes against what the world tells us. The world tells us that we are special because we've accomplished something. The world says you are great because of what you have done. Now, kids, if you want to look in your bag, you'll see this fun little trophy. It's a golden thumbs up. But when we do sports, what do we receive? We receive participation trophies. And the, today's goal is not to get on a rant on participation trophies, but rather to show, does that not point that our culture desires everyone to feel great and special and get recognition? It, it, desire, it shows that our culture, it prioritizes this. Kids, this trophy can actually give us a false sense of security in our mind. I'm something special. Why? Well, because I have a trophy and that, and that shows me that. Like, that's not just with kids. Adults, we do it too. But it's different memorabilia that we hang on our walls. 
to show that we're great and that we're something special. You see, greatness is something that's for the Lord, but value, but value, but worth, that's given to us from God. And if value and worth are given to us from God and they're completely detached to achievements, then we don't have to spend all of our life trying to be great. I want you to imagine this concept of image bearer and how it might play itself out. Imagine a church full of people not chasing their own glory, but living as image bearers to the rest of the world, looking to be reflection of God to our community, not looking to prop ourselves up, not looking to change someone, other, someone else's perception of us, not working day in and day out so that other people can think more highly of us, but rather being image bearers. What if we did that here in this church? Where we quit chasing our own glory while doing the Lord's work? What if we did that in our, in our workplace? Where we aren't chasing our glory, but we're acting as image bearers. What if we did that? Imagine a church that doesn't chase their own glory. I just, I can't help but imagine how powerful that would be in a community. A community that is believing the lie that what you accomplish tells is how valuable you are to society. And what you can do is how valuable you are. But what if we showed up and said, it's not that. God made you valuable because you are made in his image. God gave you value before you did a thing in the world. Quit trying to chase your greatness. It's not for you. It's for the Lord. But live as a chosen, loved, valued person that God has made, that God has crafted. Come to know Jesus. Live in that relationship. That's so much more powerful than the rat race of chasing greatness. And so how do we respond? I think for some of us, we have to repent. And that's where I found myself. Having to repent of, wanting, of chasing after something. And just coming to the cross and saying, Lord, I, I've chased my own recognition and I've become an image maker, not an image bearer, where I am so fixated on making someone else's image of me be blank. And it's the, it's the person that kneels with the heart, surrender, that says, God, I like to be an image bearer. I'd make, I like to make much of you in my life. All right, guys, the, the band's gonna come back and we're gonna sing and we're gonna respond in worship but our heart should come to the Lord and say, God, show me where I have made much of myself and lead me back to you. Because God is not looking to condemn and judge and make you feel the incredible guilt. God is looking to remind you that you were valuable before you did anything. And we don't have to chase our own glory. Let's pray and then we shall sing. Father, we don't want to be a community that chases our own glory, but we, want, we desire to be a community that reflects you to the world around. God, we desire to be 
community that doesn't make much of ourselves in the community. God, I just feel like we can all relate to these disciples. They just get in this petty argument about which one's greater. God, I pray that we would lay that down and we would say, the Lord is great. And I get to be a part of his family. Yes, Lord, help us to see, help us to respond.